WFMP Forward Radio. This is Community Control Now. I'm your co-host, Vincent Gonzalez. This is my esteemed colleague, Michael T. here. Say what's up to the people. What's happening? Hey, yeah, so uh, we're here to talk out and uh, try to flesh out some ideas on uh, some people-centered solutions to some of the societal concerns here we have in our town and our uh, greater society. So at uh, Community Control Now, we believe in the power for all oppressed people all over the world. And uh, in particular, we seek to advocate for the campaign of uh, democratic control of the police. All right. Today, we want to focus on the history of policing. And um, maybe after that, uh, look at some solutions that we could find uh, regarding uh, that history and how it affects us today. So, uh, Michael T., what you got for the people here? Well... As always, we like to ground our analysis and our comments and our theories in historical, a historical materialist and dialectical materialist approach. And as I said before, concerning dialectical materialism, it sounds like a very fancy phrase, but it just purely means essentially that we try to look at social and natural phenomenon in its objective form, mm-hmm. how it exists in reality, how it changes, how it evolves, how it devolves, the contradictions could, within it. Could you give us an example of that? And how they're interrelated. Well, a very good uh, example of it is um, just African-American history. You know, when we look at that, uh, we look at our history uh, as African-Americans coming here as chattel slaves. We look at the changes we've gone through. We look at the contradictions within our group and the relationships we have with other groups and phenomena. And the historical materialism is just... Uh, the historical application of all of that, uh, that dialectics can relate to science, uh, historical materialism relates to history. And as... So it's almost like an interconnectedness of all, of all the things yes, that looking at things make and, us who we are. Yeah, looking at things not from a theoretical point of view. We draw the theory from the reality and the practice, what we see unfolding with before our very eyes. And as you said, Vincent, today we want to focus on, as part of our community control project, and as it relates to policing, the whole history of policing in the United States, beginning with the slave patrols. And... Uh, We want to begin this discussion with an excerpt from Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Yes, and uh, the book is called Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. And um, reading from that excerpt here, this is under the uh, subheading of Slave Patrols. All right. From the perspective of African Americans who survived the organized violence, There was no distinction between patrollers, Klan, and white policemen, whether rural, in towns, or in the cities. In 19th century criminal digests, arrests made by slave patrollers before the Civil War continued to be used as legal precedents in the 1880s. 
Hayden notes that the language of slave patrol is still employed in police work in the 21st century. Patrol being the most obvious, but also B. More disturbingly, techniques were folded into police practices, such as surveillance methods like the stakeout. And until the 1960s pushback, police had little supervision and routinely brut uh, brutalized and confined suspects without consequences. Even in the 21st century, when police torture or murder black people, juries rarely find the involved officers guilty of any crime. So that's um, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz uh, loaded and within uh, uh, using the um, slave patrol. I think the research of uh, Haddon uh, or Hayden. Sally apologies. Haddon. Sally, Sally, that's the one. And um, so, yeah... Um, give a little people some discourse on that. Yes, and uh, we'll get back to Sally Haddon uh, in a moment because she wrote a very definitive work that you just read from about the slave patrols that we draw much of our information from. And I encourage people to try to look up that document. Uh, I found it originally um, in the Louisville uh, Library. Uh, it's a great book. But I want to put, again, this in historical context, because when we talk about policing, uh, we have to know not only how it developed, but why it developed. Historian Gerald Horn points out, for instance, that during the period of chattel slavery, the slave owners... Uh, who were the leaders of colonial society, often referred to African-Americans, enslaved African-Americans, as intestinal enemies. Intestinal enemies. Yes. He actually used that quote, quoting an actual slave master saying that, that the blacks were intestinal enemies, you know, meaning, along with the, the indigenous peoples. Meaning they were... Uh Side by side, I guess, in almost an intertwined sort of... Uh, yes, enemies yeah. within the body politic. And uh -huh. you can see why. I mean, we were enslaved, so that was an automatic state of war. John Locke even refers to slavery, period, as a state of war. So they understood that this was a state of war, of internal warfare. They were enslaving people for profit, and the people who were being enslaved were constantly resisting. So we were constantly a thorn in their side, along with the indigenous people whose lands were being taken. So, you know, in addition to their external enemies, like the French colonialists and the Spanish colonialists and others that they were simultaneously contesting with, they recognized that they had internal forces to deal with. And I thought that was very interesting the way he cited that. So um, there were constant rebellions, as you would expect. We know about some of them, the Nat Turner's Rebellion, Denmark Vesey's Rebellion, Gabriel Prosser's Rebellion. Those were some of the major rebellions, but there were a lot of minor ones and um, and then we also uh, I know we talk about it in passing uh, other you know forms of saboteur um, you know poisoning of masters um, breaking tools to yes. halt production 
you know, a lot of different methodologies uh, were used under, you know, under the banner of insurrection or, you know, obstructionist uh, yes. sort of ideas. So. Yes, yes, yes. It was constant rebellion, small and large rebellions. So we're in an environment of warfare, of, yeah. you know, the slaves constantly rebelling against slavery and the enslavers constantly trying well, to repress in, it. And in, in, in concert with the indigenous uh, genocide suppression, uh, almost, the, you know, like you said, use that term war, um, you know, taking upon an act of war as if it, it was a nation state uh, that they were up against of some sort, you know, within the, <laughs> exactly. the trash ideas of, you know, um, you know, African persons, enslaved Africans, and, um, you know, the indigenous persons of this land. And this was before the nation state was formed. So the point, you know, we're trying to make is that this form of policing began in the colonial period before the establishment of the nation state, which makes sense because slavery was established before uh, the establishment what, of the what nation would be state. be the proper term for that? Maybe, uh, I mean, I guess more of a militia, sort of, uh, well, you know, the term patrol. Yeah, they actually directly. called them patrols, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the slaves referred them well, to them as the patty rollers. Yeah. You know, as a, as a uh, you know, their own dialect. Well, a patrol comes from sort of the, uh, and I actually first heard that from, like, Western movies where, you know, you'd gather up a, you know, a group of citizens. A posse. Yeah, a posse. Let's <laughs> yeah. gather up a posse. And we'll, exactly. You know, the, 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 uh, the bank robber hiding in the cave, you know, we'll smoke them out. And <laughs> smoke kinda, them out. But it was, you know, so it, there was no, uh, it, it had a uh, de facto legal backing to it, but there was no, you know, document. You didn't, you didn't run to be posse leader as an elected body or, you know what I mean? Uh, like, like you would, you know, elect a constable or something. Um, so yeah, they had this impermanence of you know, and and the backing of uh, you know the the capitalists of that time, the the slaveholders, um, you know, they were going to retrieve uh, their human capital. Yes, and it's important to know that this whole concept of the slave patrol actually began in the British Caribbean colonies. Yes. Because as, you know, students of um, African-American history should know that most of the enslaved people came to actually the Caribbean islands and South America. As a matter of fact, Brazil was uh, where most of us came. And then secondly, to the Caribbean. And then thirdly, to continental uh, USA. They call it the triangle trade. Shout out to Miss Johnson, my seventh grade social studies teacher at uh, Johnson Traditional Middle School for teaching me that uh, triangle trade with that second leg being um, from the they would, uh, I guess, sort of uh, season the um, enslaved Africans on the islands. And uh, many of them, many of them died on the those yes. islands because of the harsh conditions, of yes. uh, rampant fever. And uh, from there, you know, the seasoning or they would do the trade of, uh, you know, the material goods of the island for the human capital of uh, enslaved Africans. Uh, And from there, those who survived that process, uh, they would be uh, transplanted to the Americas. Exactly. um, Exactly. Yeah. But it was in, you know, the 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 British Caribbean colonies that 
they initially implemented these the slave patrols. And you can see, just looking at the demographics, why it was so critical in the Caribbean, because the Europeans were greatly outnumbered, and there were many, many uprisings. Gerald Horn, again, who I encourage all of the listeners to uh, read, uh, really elucidates how the slave owners in those islands were under constant threat of insurrection. And those islands were very valuable uh, to the European colonists. They actually, at some point before the rise of King Cotton in continental USA, uh, the value of the islands was greater. The sugar cane uh, and all of the other products that they were growing in those islands held much more value to the enslavers. So um, these patrols actually first emerged in those colonies. And as Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz points out, they was a way, they, they represented a way to extend the task of controlling enslaved Africans from overseers and slavers to all the white settlers, you know, shifting the responsibility from, as we pointed out in the last, um, I think we touched on this in the last installment, from private responsibility to the public. You could see the, the, the pecuniary interest in this, too, because initially, you know, he putting that total policing responsibility on the slave owners themselves cost them. So they cleverly, you know, as they were expanding this white supremacy com, um, com project, incorporated the non-slave owning white people and... Um, any enslaved person outside the direct control of the slaver or overseer uh, was required in those islands to carry a pass and was subject to questioning by a slave patrol. And um, this, again, was collective racial policing in addition to any other type of policing that they were involved in. And... Um, now, as those uprisings increased, many of those slaveholders left the Caribbean islands and made a beeline to the continental USA. And that's how slavery grew in many ways um, on the continent. I mean, there, there are reams and reams of information how right after um, an uprising, say, for instance, in Barbados or Haiti, or Cuba, uh, slave owners would gather up their slaves and go to South Carolina or Georgia or North Carolina mm -hmm. and take their slaves with them. Yeah. And so, they carried a lot of the same practices they learned in the islands, such as patrolling. Yeah. Uh, so I think South Carolina was one of the first colonies where they began to adapt, you know, that policy, you know, to uh, the continent. So I would like to uh, just uh, put out there, you are listening to Community Control Now, WFMP, Forward Radio, 106.5 FM. And uh, yeah, I did want to sort of look at the viewpoint of where do we see uh, elements of those, uh, the lens of policing, the, you know, 
um, sort of the degree of barbarism in the tactics of, you know, um, seasoning or whatever terminology they use to, you know, break the psychological will of the uh, enslaved Africans. Um, yeah, how do we see where that plays into where, where we're at right now? Well, I want to get to that, but before I get to that, uh, Vincent, I do want to uh, make it clear to the listening audience the function of the slave patrols, you know, putting it in the historical context. Uh, it's important to know that, um, you know, the first uh, function was to hunt down and return escaped slaves. Uh, second, to discourage rebellions and escapes, which were very prevalent. I mean, escaping was the most prevalent means used by the enslaved to resist slavery. I mean, there were rebellions and uh, insurrections, but of course, we know that they were usually put down in a very bloody fashion. Very few succeeded. Um, individuals striking out on the plantation by themselves usually resulted in harsh punishment, getting your foot chopped off or your, you know, some kind of you know, um, severe injury. So escape was the major form of rebellion. So part of the function of the slave patrol was to prevent that because they were always on the lookout for slaves on the periphery of the plantation trying to get away, or maybe the, it was a rumor that Harriet Tubman was in the area with her people and luring them away, or they heard some songs, and so there were rumors constantly going on, yeah. and it created a very paranoid atmosphere. Oh, absolutely. Well, it almost, you know, an impermeance within that culture where, you know, it's so funny how it have uh, that vibes with, you know, current and many conservative talking points, uh, this, you know, liberalism of uh, individual freedoms when uh, you wasn't too concerned with, you know, if it, if it wasn't, uh, you know, a property that you were overseeing, what concern was it of you, you know, what, what people were doing to, you know, to liberate themselves. But they saw, the, like you said, this intertwining of, of, of collective paranoia, if you will. And we know that within collective paranoias, you tend to uh, overreach and um, sort of, you know, weigh in these um, just, you know, highly morassive uh, ideas and, you you know, brutality follows. Exactly. And, and I do want to mention that, you know, at the same time that these slave patrols were developing, you had militias, which are similar, that were developing to put down... Indian uprisings, you know, the uprisings of the indigenous peoples. And, um, you know, for instance, um, after 1650, and I'm reading here from uh, the same document you were reading from earlier called Loaded by Dunbar, uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She says, after 1650, slavers in Virginia began expanding deeper into the territory of the Tuscarora Nation. And, uh, which is an indigenous nation, and were the first English settlers in what became the North Carolina colony in 1729. During the first three decades of Virginia settler incursion, the colony's militia, again, which is similar to the slave patrols, was used solely to attack and burn down Tuscarora towns, 
incinerate their crops, and slaughter the families who resided there. By 1722, the embattled Tuscaroras joined the Haudenosaunee's, the Iroquois Federation, which much of our Constitution is based on, and migrated north for protection from settler terrorism, while some communities remained in severely deteriorating um, conditions. You know, and as we were talking about earlier, I remember as a child uh, hearing about the Texas Rangers and kind of cheering them on. You know, particularly there was a show I'm sure many in the audience remember called The Lone Ranger. And it was supposedly based on a real or a fictitious story about um, uh, some, some Texas Rangers who were attacked by some indigenous people and they killed everyone in the group except this one ranger. And uh, this, this one um, uh, native person who's named Tonto found him and nursed him back to health and they became partners fighting crime. But they never gave you the backstory in this TV show. Of why and, uh, the Lone Ranger was alone. Yes, and who the to... Texas Rangers will, really were because they never really showed him fighting any Mexicans. He was just, you know, just a fighting against crime during the frontier. They were a bit more of a, a proto-militia, if you will, for that exactly. territory. Exactly, who were specifically yeah. targeting um, indigenous peoples and Mexicans. And, you know, many indigenous people say that Mexicans are another type of indigenous peoples. So, you know, while you had these slave patrols policing the enslaved, you had uh, another whole connected entity, similar entity, uh, policing the indigenous peoples. And uh, so... It, Sounds, go ahead, I'm that, I was just saying, I know there was... Uh, you said many different types of things. You mentioned uh, overseers and uh, patrollers. And I uh, was just trying to see, I guess, was there main distinctions? I think you also mentioned something about constables. Uh, yes, I want to get into system. that at some point. Yes, yes, there were constables, but I want to talk about um, you know again this this the function of the slave patrols. We talked about you know hunting down and returning escaped slaves, discouraging rebellions and escapes, and uh, preventing future escapes and rebellions, because you know just the presence of these patrols. Uh, were there to deter any enslaved people from even attempting to do this, because this is what you'll face. And, um, and there were several lines of, I guess you could say, of protection for the slave owners. Um, uh, you had the overseer, who was armed. You know, we were talking earlier about the butler. There was a scene from the movie The Butler where they actually showed field, uh, slaves in the field and uh, a, uh, an armed overseer on a horse. And that's typically how it happened. Usually the overseer worked um, or lived on the plantation. There was the, the, the big house, and then there, you know, several uh, miles down was the overseer's house, and then the slave cabins. So the overseer was one line of protection for the slave owner. But um, outside of the plantation, is where the slave patrols were needed. If the slaves got beyond the overseers, as often happened, or killed the overseer, um, there was another ring of protection by having ordinary 
white men patrolling the periphery. Now, there was even another ring of people they called the constables. And they were usually those in the towns who the escaped slaves were brought to or locked up until the slave owners came and claimed them again. Sometimes the overseers would, after they beat them up, I mean, sometimes after the slave patrollers, after they beat up the slaves that they captured, they, and they were allowed to do that, they would, you know, but not kill them because they, they were, you know, valued property. They would be brought to uh, directly back to the slave owner, or many times they would be locked up, and um, you know, by the constables. And um, the slave owner would send someone to get them, or he might come down to get them themselves. So we see the evolution of policing in the United States, specifically in the colonies where you had slavery, and slavery existed in every colony, all of the 13 colonies. Now, they ended at different times in individual colonies, but slavery existed I think it's important for people to know this because there's this erroneous nation, oh, that was just in the southern colonies or the southern um, United States. It ended up like that, you know, by the time of the Civil War. But slavery existed in every, in all 13 colonies from Maine all the way down to Georgia. Now, Georgia is an interesting colony because, I mean, a lot of times people don't realize that the original British colonies did not include Initially, Florida, that was a Spanish colony that was in contention with the British. Because remember, you know, you had competing colonial powers, primarily the French and the Spanish and the English. Now, you had others, the Dutch and all like that, uh, but they tended to be at some point pushed out by the French and the Spanish and the British. The British were actually the last ones the British were actually the last ones, you know, to get into the game. And they wound up controlling the game. And then, of course, they got kicked out, you know, when their surrogate leaders kicked them out and took it over. And, you know, the rest was history. But uh, I think it's important to know that. So the, the, the other point is that it's because of the contention between the Spanish uh, colonialists in, in Florida and the British in South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, and all like that, um, uh, there were the, the Spanish were actually, you know, who had employed slavery too. But at some point, they started freeing their slaves and arming them and encouraging them to to uh, to make incursions into the British colonies. Because, again, they were vying for land. It wasn't so much that they loved black people, but they were they were slick enough to use black people, the Spanish, to, as a force, along with their other forces, to gain more land for themselves. So they had to free their slaves in order to arm them. So one of the, 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 um, the, the strategies the British colonialists did was they said, we got to set up a separate colony as a buffer between Florida and South Carolina. That's how they started the Georgia colony. Georgia started as a, initially as an all-white colony just for white immigrants to buffer. I was this. always taught it was a debtor's prison. 
Yeah, yeah, a lot of them were debtors, you know, from the, from the old country. Um, but they didn't want any blacks there. But that didn't work out because, as you can see today, Georgia has a whole lot of black people yeah, there. Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. It's the new chocolate city. A lot city. of slaves eventually came there, and a lot of black people settled there and settled there to this That's day. That's where uh, Booker T. Washington... Uh, did the uh, Southern Exposition is yes. cast down his bucket? So that was a, yeah, and James very, Brown was born. I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah man. I think it was Macon, Georgia, but yeah, a whole yeah, lot of yeah. Otis Redding, that way. Yeah. whole bunch of folks came from uh, came yeah, from Atlanta. But it started out, you know, before you know, after it was you know, the indigenous people were exterminated and pushed out as a white, exclusively white colony to buffer uh, the slave. The British slave colonies from the Spanish colony in Florida. Yeah. So you are listening to uh, Community Control Now, Forward Radio, WFMP, Louisville, 106.5. Uh, we are talking about the history of policing uh, with my esteemed colleague here, Michael T. I'm your, one of your co-hosts, Vincent Gonzalez. Uh, going back to the history of policing, we're looking at uh, the mechanisms that uh, lead up, if you will, to the current system as we see it. So what uh, are some parallels that you would see as we sort of look forward, um, think about how this history shapes our current view of policing? Um, what are some things that you perhaps see that, that history uh, still pervades us? Well, you know, there are many things, uh, but let me say this first, that, you know, as policing evolved, you know, after the end of chattel slavery, uh, those policing entities took on other kinds of duties. You know, they didn't have slaves so much to chase down and return to plantations. So, I mean, rather than just abolish them and create some new policing force. They just expanded what had already been in existence. So, you know, along with suppressing now the ex-slaves, uh, they took on other duties. Um, and in many cases, you know, they got paid more. Um, they, um, you know, consolidated the force and, you know, added a bureaucracy to it, uh, became more professionalized. And, uh, and it resulted in the policing apparatus that we have today. It's like you read earlier in the uh, opening uh, statement that much of the terminology that was used initially is used today. Patrolling, that came from that, you know, on the beat and a bunch of things, you know. So it was um, an evolution that we see today. And I think... One of the most important factors, and that people are beginning to see that um, as policing evolved in the post-chattel slavery period, um, you could sort of look at it like the Frankenstein story, white supremacy emerging as a divide and rule kind of mechanism, and... Um, a way of justifying this horrible thing that was happening to people and now propagating this out to the broader population of people who didn't even have slaves, at some point it took on a life of its own. 
You didn't even need slavery or to propagate it because it had been internalized by the general population. And even sadly enough, even some of the victims, even some of the slaves internalized white supremacy. So therefore, you could even bring in people of color on the forces. You know, they've been inculcated in the white supremacy, often without, without even saying it. And, uh, and we still today have, I think most people would agree yeah. who are honest, a white supremacist nationalist state that's never called that. But we know that how it originated, we can tell by the forces that still it's a, dominate. It's a great part of its lens and how it carries out its duties. Um, you know, and we see these uh, interplay between uh, different functions of a society. We see the interplay between police patrols and the military. You know, yes. we're starting to get into uh, the imperialist uh, sort of uh, mindsets and, you know, causing yes. harms of violence uh, to many times uh, persons of color all over the world. All over the world. So, exactly. you, know, and, 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 you know, these local issues that we find ourselves faced with um, have a much greater scale than, you know, sometimes we don't give credit to it being uh, so. And that's a profound point you brought up, uh, Vincent, when you said imperialism. That can't be said enough. Now, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, who we've um, 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 been quoting from in this episode, she points out, and this is very enlightening for me, that when we talk about imperialism, we can't just look at that as the kind of conquest that took place after the nation state called the U.S. was created. She says that imperialism, and I noticed that a lot of our indigenous um, activists say that that imperialism actually began with the subduing of their nations. And the reason it's not viewed like that, even on the left in many cases, because uh, a lot of leftist analysis of imperialism begins with Lenin and at the turn of the 20th century. You know, in a book he did called Imperialism, The Highest Stage of Capitalism, which I read years ago, and I subscribed to it. But it was only until I started really studying indigenous histories that I began to see that the suppression of these nations and the conquest of these nations began way before then. And in the context of the new world, if you recognize that the indigenous people had nations scattered all over um, this hemisphere in South who, and Central and North America. Nations who, you know, engaged in uh, we recognize them as nation international trade. Yeah, uh, had, had treaties and barters, yes, and, yes. you know, and and as we know through our history, uh, the white supremacist nation uh, that they made deals with broke every single one of exactly. These and part of that because they refused, even as they were going through the motions, to really recognize those nations. Oh, those were those are just primitive tribes. They were nothing like the nations we have because they were, you know, constructed in different ways. They they were nothing like the nations 
the Europeans had and the models they had. But as Ortiz points out, they were nevertheless real nations that were being taken over and trampled on. And she says that was the beginning of imperialist conquest. What they did overseas in the Philippines and Puerto Rico and these other places, that was merely a continuation of that. So when we study imperialism, we have to begin with the imperialistic takeover of, you know, hundreds of indigenous nations. And how these things, and I see... Uh, how these things are intricately linked to uh, the protection of personal property, um, you know, private enterprise, uh, how they, you know, they weren't uh, trying to take over Antarctica because of the lack of natural resources, which there's actually, they, you know, they want to drill into <laughs> the Arctic Circle now. But, you know, the, the, the basis of um, protecting and the expansion of, um, you know, private capital, yes. personal property, um, and, you know, this just this concept of um, infinite growth in a finite world. Yes. Um, yes. You know, but that, that was very much the lens. They, you know, they would go to some, um, you know, southern tropic uh, island and, uh, you know, enslave and brutalize the people just to extract their um, natural resources, as we know, uh, in Cuba— that was the lens in which, um, after there was some slave insurrections, uh, they sort of uh, brokered uh, with some of, uh, and some of the former slaveholders were a part of the process of, um, you know, brokering over a system where they basically just, uh, you know, overtly exploited and had, you know, puppet regimes that would, yes. just, you know, highly placate to the whims of the, uh, you know, former slaveholders now just. Uh, titans of industry is some of the words that they like to call themselves, but we know them to be, uh, you know, just the propagators of this white supremacist um, capitalist sort of lens. So, you yes. know, all the, the interwovenness of all mm-hmm. of these things, um, we can't leave that out in our analysis. Yes, and it's very important to, to, to reiterate that when we talk about white supremacy, we're talking about Again, not something that was intrinsic to white people or Europeans or there was just something in them that made them evil. No, there was some Europeans who were seeking to accumulate capital, you know, a minority of them, and profit, and to justify that seeking and that pillage they use white supremacy. We're superior. That's why we're doing it. Not that we want money. People, you know, oppressors always hide their motives, you know, especially for, for all posterity. And the other major motive was to divide the people who were the brunt of their oppression from the people in the colonizer's population who may have had any yeah. sympathy or willingness yeah. to well, collaborate they, they with would, the oppressed. You know, they would start with just, you know, high-dollar charlatan tactics of, you know, hey, one day, man, you you keep on this path, this talking to the, you know, the lumping poor white, you keep on this tax, man, you'll, you'll get you one of these big houses yourself here. 
You know, they still do versions of that yes. in uh, current days. You know, um, and if that didn't work, they would violently <laughs> suppress them. And you know, hey, uh, you know, we'll kill you if you stand in our way uh, within the you know the end goal of uh, white supremacist uh, ideology. Yes, no, and, yeah. yes, indeed, and and all of that again, you know, because of the lucrativeness of of ens- of enslavement. You know, like Ortiz points out here, it is estimated that. In 1860, the total value of enslaved African bodies in the United States was $4 billion. And that was far more than the gold and silver then circulating nationally, which was $228.3 million. And she points out that most of that was circulating in the North. In the North, which shows you it wasn't just the South. Uh, so, again, the whole reason for the policing was to protect that uh, horrible enterprise. And we see today, you know, as we were saying earlier, you know, as the, um, the role of policing enhanced, there was much more than, you know, slaves uh, to protect. Now you have banks and you have factories and you know other enterprises. So there's a need to protect that first and foremost. Now there and largely because of that, there are other related things that have developed for police forces. I mean because of the initial disparity and the ownership of the means of production, all kinds of social contradictions have come into play. You know, when you look at crime, period, a lot of that's due to the disparities, the economic disparities in the society. More people stealing, um, you know, seeking um, various means to get money and, and, and the vital goods that they need. Mm-hmm. So the police have a role of suppressing that. Yeah, they, and the, the legitimacy in which, you know, they are used in lockstep with uh, these, you know, capitalist endeavors. Uh, when you get evicted, uh, they do not send a, uh, you know, banker <laughs> to uh, hand you the notice of eviction. You know, they get the, you know, some, depending on where you live, the constable's office or, you know, going back to, you know, that term being uh, developed in slavery, uh, but many times they send the sheriff, which those are, you know, in many uh, counties, those are interchangeable terms. But, you know, it, within the state of Kentucky, uh, that's uh, for the most part, uh, those are uh, somewhat distinct. The sheriff has more uh, powers than a, uh, a constable would perhaps be in the same vein personally, and I'm allowed to be wrong on this, more so of a magistrate or a justice of the peace. That's interesting. They still will. got constables. Yeah, Something yeah, that yeah. started during chattel slavery. Uh-huh. They had constables. Oh, we got a lot of constables. <laughs> well, there was a local story a few years back, and um, constables shot and killed someone in the Walmart parking lot, kind of on one of these little, you know, sort of George Zimmerman type mm-hmm. of uh, cowboys, yeah. you know, thinking that they're going to, you know, solve a crime in the Walmart that wasn't even, <laughs> it turns out, 
you know, it wasn't even his jurisdiction yeah. and all this other thing, but he... Uh, right there, Keller. Yeah. Was, and, and you see clearly, you know, how that is the priority. And see, and, and, and this is obscure for many people because, you know, they look at crime in the poor areas. You know, every sociologist in the world has told us that where you have poverty, you're going to have crime. Where people are in, living in, in general deprivation, they have to survive some way, so there's going to be crime. You know, So ultimately, you've got to solve that problem. But what does the system do? You know, they, give, they, they bring us the police, knowing that the police can't solve the economic uh, discrepancies and um, uh, dislocations. The police can't solve that. And a lot of them know they can't solve that. They're put on the front lines, as always, to solve that problem. But they can't solve that problem. That's a structural problem, and which is why they can't solve crime, and which is in many cases why I think many of them aren't even trying to solve yeah, crime yeah. because they know they can't. I mean, if, if you've got powerful forces allowing drugs into the country, for instance, if you've got powerful people involved in all kinds of criminal activity all through the society, just the police forces could not solve that. The best they can do is repress people, lock people up, feed the prison industrial complex, you know, which is another way of making profits, and be the targets of the animosity of the people that they're oppressing. And they're beginning to see that, that they're basically they're just you know, the fall guys for this. You know, they're not, uh, it's not even a heroic thing they're doing. You're basically just as a serving as a way of, of suppressing contradictions that, that uh, are way beyond their control and protecting the people who set these things in motion. Perhaps that's why uh, their suicide completion rates are among one of the highest professions. You know, that wrestling with that, you, you open the show talking about contradictions. That's a, a, a stunning contradiction that you yes. are merely a pawn in a, you know, capitalist, you know, wrestling for, um, you know, greater capital. Really? But it's a serious contradiction because unlike some of the others, they're armed. That's why we talk about community control. I mean, this is this is a very serious contradiction that results in people getting locked up, losing yeah. all their freedom, so I'm glad you said being that. killed. Yeah, you we, know, we so that's about, why it has to be addressed. We got about a little bit over ten minutes left, so yeah, let's let's bring them home here a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we we are and coming from I think on our first pilot show, you know, I, I've somewhat threw out the idea and uh, that. You know, community control could be seen by many as radical, but going through all the that we've said within that history and how it still relates to our current struggle, you know, to what extent can uh, things be trusted to reform with, you know, the current state of being? So how we see it right now, and we're talking about this current city of ours, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, I don't know how powerful that antenna is, man. They, uh, if you Indiana might might catch us uh, on a sunny day or whatever, but you know, mostly focusing in that Louisville metro area. 
we see um, the current remedy for police misconduct is uh, any sort of uh, shooting. If an officer is in an officer-involved shooting, um, they are brought to uh, an internal review, um, and that's in concert with this new inspector general position that was created through the mayor's office. Uh, from there, the inspector general's office will determine which misconduct <laughs> allegations will go towards the civilian review board. On that, once this, uh, I my apologies, don't know how many uh, the current number is. I, I imagine it's an odd number. Uh, but these are citizens who applied through the mayor's office to be a part of this uh, civilian accountability council. So from there, they'll review the evidence, uh, watch the body cam footage if they turned them on, and you know make a recommendation of what they feel like uh, the proper amount of redress for the citizens is. Uh, from there... There's no subpoena power, <laughs> no um, firing no, and hiring yeah, no, no, power. No, yeah, no hiring, firing <laughs> power, no indictments are crafted. I don't even think they get a Zoom call with the attorney general in this regard. That that is, it is the re- recommendation, and um, I trust my the esteemed listeners of this program right now to understand that um, they have shown no history to uh, reform themselves or to take uh, the cries of the city, you know, we still think about the level of discourse uh, as it goes on amongst citizens and amongst their internal emails, you know, the intercepted emails that we hear from the LMPD where they feel emboldened. The, the, the masses, uh, the number of people that were out there in the streets um, stating that this is wrong and that, we, you know, a sincere cry for justice. They, uh, it was crickets yes. on their behalf. In the, or if anything, they tightened down the bat, the hatches <laughs> to further subjugate persons. Uh, and then you hear stories that they're just, I mean, they're just outright messing with people. Those that, uh, uh, you know, protesters, demonstrators who um, spend physical space at the uh, what they've turned as Injustice Square. On 6th and Jefferson, you'll just see just instances of, you know, um, little just petty saboteur tactics. But, you know, that leads us to what we have now. And it's just a, you know, it's a hamster wheel in so many ways. And to me, in my mind, the only uh, thing I can see that would uh, begin to turn, and I hope... um, the sentiment is felt amongst my esteemed colleague and myself that we uh, see this as no panacea in no way, shape, or form. I always, when people want to, you know, be reductionist when it comes to, uh, you know, reforming something. Oh, you want to get rid of the police? You want to take the, uh, you know, the power of the police to investigate themselves? Or what you going to replace it with? I always start with not this. <laughs> Anything but this. We need progressive solutions and strategies yeah. uh, to attack this thing yes. at the head. White supremacy. We can't. We didn't say white supremacy on the weekends, or <laughs> you know, maybe just a you know. Uh, and you, let me say you this: yourself, it's yeah. about 
I think well, we've got to impress upon people. One of the things we're trying to do and you're trying to do with this program is to impress upon people that the fundamental question is about power. Who has the power? Mm-hmm. It's well, the same fundamental question that it was during chattel enslavement. Yeah, one, B, one B, what does power look like? When we say power, what do we mean? We're talking about the collective, the masses having the power over their own lives to determine the policies and the practices that uh, govern their lives. You know, collectively determining that, not a few people. You know, just like the whole chattel slavery thing. That wasn't a struggle to have a better condition of slavery. You know, we're going to negotiate better terms of our slavery, and the master is still intact. But I'm going to get a few more privileges from the master. We're talking about fundamentally changing the power dynamics. The police and the people who set up the police should not be in control. Now, that's that's a very radical sounding thing. But, you know, as radicals, radical means reaching to the roots of things. It's one definition of being radical, reaching to the root, not the surface. The root of things is that the, the power that the police represent is the power of the 1%. That's why they exist the way they do. And we're saying, yes, we understand that there's still a need to, for a lot of reasons, you know, to have social safety and to police neighborhoods, all neighborhoods. But that power has got to be public power, true public power, not just in name, you know, that represents the people themselves and it and presently it does not represent the people themselves this is why we're not getting justice because the policing apparatus in the main in the main represents the same people who have the power in the general society so yeah i did want to put a little something on man i I think i sent you something here uh a day ago not the um Put you on the spot here. These mics are on, but I know I did send you um, something. Our main man in Chicago, Frank Chapman of the uh, Chicago Alliance of uh, Racist and Political Repression. They are um, in talks currently. They have uh, a majority of the uh, um, alder alder persons. I believe that's what they call their what we call our council persons. Aldermen. Aldermen. Yes. Uh, well, we, uh, alder persons. Alder persons yeah, should be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we we want to... Sure, there's know. some women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, the patriarchy. Yes. The language here. <laughs> if you can dig it. But, um, you know, their alder persons are uh, in league. They have the teachers union to back up their... Uh, the, the ideas that we spoke on minutes ago, mainly the ability to hire and fire police officers for misconduct um, or, you know, hire uh, ones that um, can be put through some sort of litany test, um, that, you know, that are, um, you know, less susceptible to uh, be a uh, white supremacist or a brutalizer, you know, things of that nature, obviously, uh, wouldn't be perfect, but they're uh, going through that lens and the subpoena power piece that we talked about too. So they are um, in talks with uh, Lori Lightfoot, the Chicago mayor, and mm. she's um, so they're they're relatively close here. But she's a she's a, a obstructionist in uh, many forms, and she has uh, pulled several tactics, um, just outright lying in many cases, um, but. 
you know, needing to see, and this is a, I feel like this should be a, a point of radicalization, for lack of a better term here, to know that, like, our neighbors right up the road here are relatively close, and we can have the same thing in this community. Yeah, and that's why we have to follow that model. I mean, and again, I mean, however way uh, community control over the police occurs in Louisville might not be like it occurs in Chicago. Absolutely. But we can learn a lot from that model since they are in the forefront right now yeah. of this struggle. And uh, and we hope to shed more light on this in future episodes. Absolutely, we hope to get our uh, dear brother uh, Frank Chapman to come on and break down the specifics of it. But I want us to know that uh, these are not pies in the sky; these are things that we can have. But we have to stay person centered, uh, stay focused, and uh, very much emboldened in our truth that. You know, there's a better world that we can live in. So, you know, this is community control now. You know, my esteemed colleague, Michael T., uh, astutely broke down so many parts of the history of policing from the slave patrols um, to the uh, over-policing of minority communities, other subjugated communities, and uh, how that is inextricably linked to um, capitalist overreach and imperialism. So, man, we want to keep up the energy here. Uh, we don't have much of anything in terms of, you know, bells and whistles to bring this along, man. We just hope anybody that's listening out here that uh, this could be a, a, a point of gabalization, you know, let this embolden you to, to seek out research and um you know let's get together let's make a plan to to see a better world here